tension. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and this is Shop Talk, our Thursday morning episode we're producing every week with a focus on labor education, history, and training. It's Thursday, August 10th, and we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley here in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. Today on the show, it's our Labor Notes featured episode, and we're talking with Courtney Smith about her workshop called Race and Labor. Really looking forward to this interview. But before we get into that, I do want to take a moment to thank our very first sponsor, which just so happens to be Labor Notes. At the Valley Labor Report, we are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is a media and organizing project that since 1979 has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, Labor Notes promotes organizing, aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, local union leaders, and labor activists who know the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, worker centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. With 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exists as a resource for leaders and union members who want to chart a new course for the labor movement. At the Valley Labor Report, we are proud subscribers and supporters, and we encourage our listeners to do the same. Go to labornotes.org to find out more. So again, welcome everyone. I do appreciate y'all tuning in. Always happy to be here on a Thursday for Shop Talk and... As I mentioned, today is the Labor Notes-themed episode. Every month, we do a Labor Notes episode, and this month, we have Courtney Smith, and she's going to talk about a training she does with Labor Notes called Race and Labor. How does racism show up in our workplaces and our unions? What are some strategies to confront and build solidarity for a stronger multiracial labor movement? And what can you say to union siblings who aren't convinced racial justice has anything to do with union politics? These are just some of the questions that are tackled in this workshop. So really looking forward to this interview. Uh, Courtney, thank you so much for coming on the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So... I really appreciate you spending some time with us this morning, and I appreciate your work as an organizer. So before we dive into this topic, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your labor movement story. Yeah. um, So my name is Courtney. I'm originally from Des Moines, Iowa. Um, 
I got involved in politics in 2018 after I was uh, unjustly fired from my job, um, working there for three years. I had received a promotion and um, disclosed to them that I had an, a misdemeanor on my background, and uh, they decided that I was employable. Um, and there was nothing that I could do to to fight this. I had tried everything that I could, um, but I had no recourse of action. Um, and so that it was then that I realized how powerful uh, employers were and how powerless I was. Um, they were able to just take away my livelihood uh, through email, nonetheless. So wow. uh, I got involved uh, with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, at the time, uh, they were in Iowa, since that's the first state that votes in the primaries. So they were there for a long time and um, started out a volunteer and then got on um, as an organizer for the campaign and uh, loved it. I started organizing Black workers in Des Moines uh, when I realized that the data that we had from the DNC wasn't going to be uh, reaching the folks that needed to hear this message. Um, I decided to go off on my own and start um, uh, having events that would reach uh, Black workers in the area. Um, and yeah, it's it had been a long journey. Uh, after, after Bernie dropped out, I uh, struggled finding uh, a home, a political home. Um, but I knew, I believed in uh, Bernie's theory of change, that it starts from the bottom up. And um, wasn't satisfied with uh, the uh, political organizations um, and their approach to to politics, and so um, I started. Uh, I decided to start working for unions, um, and yeah, that was that's how I got involved in labor notes um, and putting on events with labor notes. Uh, we did a troublemaker school here in Detroit, and then six months later, I was hired on. So now I'm here um, doing the race and labor curriculum for labor notes and uh, building a black workers network. I think that's fantastic. And I'm really glad that you are on board with labor notes and, uh, you know, appreciate you sharing that story. It's it's wild to me how many people have a story like that uh, where they have faced injustice from an employer and I feel like so many people involved in our movement, you know, have those kind of stories. And unfortunately, you know, it doesn't hit home until it really hits home sometimes. Um, yeah. And, you know, I can relate. I, I was unjustly fired by an employer as well. But in my situation, I had a union and that, you know, my union fought for me. Uh, you know, we did not prevail. But all along the way, I knew that folks had my back. And, and that was a relief I had that I know so many workers don't, and that's why yeah. it is so important. Absolutely. I, I forgot to mention that um, I found out four years later that there was a class action, class action lawsuit uh, suing the school district for using African-Americans' criminal uh, history um, against them in the hiring process. And so now I'm involved in, in the class action lawsuit. Um, but it still, it doesn't feel enough to me. I mean, um, it, it'll be, you know, there, it at least feels like, you know, satisfying that someone sees that this was wrong, but there's too many, too many workers that are left out of that. Um, and, and the burden of proof is way too high. Um, 
to even have access to uh, laws, uh, these anti-discrimination laws that protect uh, minority workers from bigotry in the workplace. Um, you have to be able to afford a lawyer. You have to have the time to be able to um, to do this. Uh, and that those are two things that uh, low-wage workers don't have. So um, yeah, it's, it's to me, anti-discrimination laws are good and they're necessary, but they're not enough in order to address um, uh, the racism, racism and bigotry that um, minority workers experience in the workplace. Right, right. And I think you hit on a lot of important things there, one of which, you know, how impractical legal protections are, like in the day-to-day -day experiences. Like we all know discrimination is against the law, but, you know, actually enforcing that and actually proving that. And like you said, affording a lawyer, affording the time to go through that, uh, and, you know, you mentioned this class action lawsuit, but here it is years later. And, yep. you know, justice delayed is justice denied. And so even if, you know, there's a favorable outcome for the workers in this in this particular lawsuit, and I hope there is, you know, we're talking years down the road. And so th those are just some of the issues when we are strictly looking at, like, what does the law say? You know, how does the law protect us? You know, there's a lot more to it in our day to day lives, which. Uh, that definitely leads us into your workshop, Race and Labor. You know, Labor Notes has a lot of online trainings, a lot of in-person trainings. Really can't recommend them enough. And the one that you do, Race and Labor, uh, I know you just had a session, uh, I guess this past week. You've got this follow-up session later this month. So tell us about this class. Yeah, so I tried to make it really practical and concrete. Um, and uh, implement a lot of organizing tools in the training. Um, so I don't consider it like a political education workshop. Um, we don't, um, I, I don't consider my expert uh, in it at all. I really focus on uh, pulling out people's experience of, um, you know, how they've done, or the experiences they've had with racism in the workplace, in uh, their unions and in society at large. Um, and then uh, we have discussion around how race or uh, racism has been holding back their organizing um, and getting people of color involved in the union. Um, I the, the definition that we have for racism is uh, racism is a tool that's used by elites to divide the working class. And it's an ideology that is uh, used to justify the the racial disparities that we see in society today. So uh, the uh, oppression and exploitation comes before the justification, right? So um, I use a historical uh, chart in um, that that an employer used back in 1929 to kind of display um, how race was used in this particular workplace in order to um, divide workers uh, by and and say you know based off their race or ethnicity, uh, what skills and working conditions that they um, would be good in, right? Um, so I have them look at this chart, uh, which I can share on screen if if that's possible. I think it's a really interesting uh, tool because uh, then we also talk about um, how the boss uh, organizes the workplace. And we talk about workplace mapping and using this chart. And so I try to have them think through, like as an organizer looking at this chart, what would the strategy here be? Um, and it brings really interesting conversation um, 
just being able to look at how race uh, was used historically, but also how whiteness is sort of malleable and how these immigrant groups um, like Irish and Dutch and uh, these um, Southern European groups weren't considered white at the time and how that's changed today. Um, so we go through that and then we also, um, I give scenarios where um, we deal with interpersonal examples of racism that people can experience within their Ooh. within the union context. Oh, I, I, like, um, and, I always like scenarios in a workshop. That's always helpful. Yeah, it brings up really great discussion. So we, I try to have them uh, think through how they would respond to these scenarios based off of the values of what a union should represent, which is trust, justice, solidarity, unity, right? And how should we respond to these scenarios? One, respond to the person individually, but two, what is the environment that the union needs to create to counteract this, these sorts of um, behaviors or thought patterns? Um, and so that it, it's not um, strictly about the individual, it's about you know how to change uh, the environment um, so that this um, behavior isn't okay, but also to make sure that Minority workers feel that they belong to the union. Um, so then the last thing that I have them do is I have contemporary examples of uh, racial justice campaigns that uh, unions or you know workers who don't have a union, um, how they've tackled uh, racism in their workplace. And so we'll go read through these um, campaign examples. We'll talk about what was the steps that they took what were the issues that they were experiencing and what were the steps that they took to address those issues? Um, and that's always, I mean, I think uh, it's, I love that, ex the, doing that so that people can see like unions are doing this work. There are, there are unions out there that are doing good work on racial justice issues. And um, yeah, and, and that it's possible to do your union. Right, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, last thing that we do is we um, sometimes we're, we're not able to get to it because uh, we have a lot of great discussion that just goes over uh, over time. So um, the last thing that I try to have them do is come up with a campaign uh, or identify an issue in their workplace that would involve um, uh, the majority of um, uh, people of color and build a campaign plan around it. Um, so yeah, it's like I. Like I said, I try to make it very concrete. I try to implement organizing tools um, like workplace mapping, one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, even uh, the most using the bullseye and how to deal with individuals who, you know, aren't who's, who's unsavory and but you know you still need they you still got to work with them. Right. Where should they be on the bullseye? Um, those sorts of things um, because it. I mean, really, it comes down to one-on-one -on -one, organizing one-on-one -on -one, right in in tackling this issue right absolutely and, and there's a lot you said that i think resonates with me and and one of them is the way in which race has been used to divide and conquer workers and i think that's particularly mm -hmm. you know relevant here in the south and it's the elephant in the room when it comes to all organizing in the south uh, you know, and it's not exclusive here to the South here, but it's certainly, you know, a historic and current problem that we deal with. Um, 
And bosses and politicians in the South have been very, very skilled over the past, you know, 150 plus years in using race to divide working people here. Uh, you know, the working class is the majority. We are the majority. We're the most diverse class, but we're the biggest class. Uh, but we're not unified so often because of these racial divisions that are promoted, uh, like you said, by the employer. And, it, and maybe it's not as explicit as it was in 1929, but uh, it's it's such a factor that we're dealing with still to this day in, ter in terms of trying to build working class unity. Uh, so that's why I think that your class is really important and having these conversations. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned y'all have a lot of hot discussion. This is a hot topic. This is going to have a lot of discussion. So what's some of the feedback you've gotten from the class? And like, do you have any, are, are there any things that really stand out in some of the discussions y'all have had? Oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot. Well, I mean, yesterday I did this training um, at the Massachusetts Teachers Association uh, conference. And uh, there was one woman who came in and I could tell she was pretty like, um, she was gonna be hard to to win over. She was like, I'm just here to make sure that you're not teaching bullshit. It's <laughs> like, okay, okay, I understand that. Um, because there's a lot of, you know, bullshit DEI workshops out there. So I, I understand that. Um, and by the end of it, she was like, I was really impressed by this workshop. It was very concrete and practical and you gave a lot of great examples. So thank you. Um, so that was good. That, that felt good. Um, I think, I mean, most of the feedback that I've received has been um, just uh, an appreciation for how concrete it is, because I think these conversations can get really abstract. Um, right. And when we talk about racism, it's it's often um, comparable to the way that we talk about the war on terror. The target is always moving. It's not um, easily identifiable, and it feels too big to even tackle. Right. And like, so, what can I do uh, as just an individual? Right. I get Yeah. That. Yep. So I have people, you know, I just, I try to bring it down to like where your hands are, uh, what, who's the first person that you can talk to. And, um, and I make sure to, like, I, I don't have all of the answers here. I think the most important thing is to figure out what are the questions that I need to be asking. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, stories, it, there's been a lot of great stories and a lot of not so great stories, because obviously people are coming, you know, sharing stories about, uh, the racism that they are experiencing in their workplace and, you know, trying to overcome that. Um, right. But yeah, the I mean, the campaign examples that we use are, there was one, there's one that I use from uh, Virginia that um, we talked about yesterday, being in the South where these uh, workers at a Kroger um, came together to um, get one of a racist manager fired. Um, that was like blatantly um, racist. So um, there's a lot of great discussion around that. And obviously, you know, with the South being so, you know, racism being so prevalent in the South, I think that was an important one to kind of pull out um, and to show people like this is this work is is happening in places where, you know, you wouldn't think that um, you'd be able to build unity um, around. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that really answers the question on cool stories. Um, there's like, yeah, I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can only imagine some of the, yeah, I mean, there's probably some heartbreaking stories that, that are told in these classes. Uh, but 
you know, I think it is important that you have those those examples of of campaigns because it's important that we have inspiration and and we can see that we're not alone. We're not the only ones who feel this way or think this way. And in fact, there are other people who not only feel the same way we do or think the same way we do, but they're doing stuff. They're actually doing yeah. stuff and, and they're actually bringing people together and we can do that too. And I think that's that's such an important lesson, especially with such a you know a tough, difficult topic to wrestle with, um, because the history of racism in this country spans 400 years, right? We can't just saw 400 years of racism in one workshop, but if we can have practical examples and strategies on how we tackle it in our workplace, you know, starting with our coworkers and our members of our union and and how do we deal with it internally and in that workplace setting? I think that's huge. Um, and we've talked, you know, we've kind of talked about this already in terms of, you know, why do you teach this class and why should folks take it? And so I'll expand that a little bit more to say, not only do why, why should folks take this particular class, race and labor, but why should we have these kind of conversations about the intersection of race and labor? Because, you know, I've heard this from, union folks myself of well why are we talking about this we shouldn't talk about this kind of thing just talking about it makes it worse right i've heard that and so i'm curious you know why is it so important to have these conversations i, I it's another way to undermine worker power um mm. is by using using race or racism to to keep um, workers divided. And I think the, I think unions are strategically positioned to do that, uh, because, uh, you know, America is still pretty segregated. Uh, you, uh, you get to choose where you live. You get to choose, uh, what school your kid goes to. You get to choose who you hang out with. Right. And, um, that might not be a diverse group of people, whereas your workplace is, uh, that's the only place where you don't get to choose who you work with, right? So it could be the only place where you're interacting with other people of color. Right. Um, and, um, you know, when we're talking about tackling racial justice issues, it should involve people of color, right? Nothing about us without us. Um, so, um, you know, if this is a tool that's used to extract more profit um, and, um, you know, build more power for, for elites, then the work site is the place where um, we should tackle racism. Um, so yeah, I think these these conversations are important to have within unions. Um, I, I also think, you know, doing it within the context of the union and building worker power is important because with laws like at-will employment, uh, an employer can find any reason to fire you. They don't even need to, um, you know, it'll, it'll be hard to, to even try to prove that your your boss fired you because you're a LGBTQ member or because you're a member of a certain protected class. Um, right. And that goes right back to what we, what we opened with in terms of, you know, the legal protections and anti-discrimination laws. And and you're so right, because when you have at-will employment, well, technically they can't fire you for a discriminatory reason, but the default is they can fire you. And good luck proving that it is that discriminatory reason. And I, I once had a lawyer, a discrimination attorney here in Alabama, tell me about a particular judge. Yeah, Adam, the only way they're going to rule that in favor of our client 
is if the discrimination jumps off the page and slaps them in the face in the courtroom, it would have to be that obvious and blatant yep. for them to to see it on the side of the employee. And I think that's the, you know, the odds we're up against often in the legal system. And so that's, you know, the power of a union to be able to address things right then and there in your workplace through collective power uh, and through, you know, your contract, through your grievance process, through organizing. That's huge. And not just relying on a court case that may or may not pan out, you know, two, three years from now or or, you know, re relying on these legalistic measures when really, you know, building the community and building the solidarity, that's going to be your greatest tool to combat this racism. And, you know, something else that, that, that this conversation makes me think of is that our unions have always been at the forefront of fights for racial justice. And fights for racial justice have always been intertwined with fights for workers' rights and, and the labor movement, right? And there's a long history there. And so this isn't like something new, like some new concept, right? I mean, right. we've, we've yep. been having these conversations in our unions for a long time. And, you know, they didn't always turn out well. Uh, our unions do have some ugly histories as well in terms of segregation and racism internally. So there's a lot to wrestle with there. But I, I think you're so right that our unions are uniquely positioned because, as you said, that may be the most diverse environment you have is your workplace. And we know that the power of unions and the power of struggling together for your common interest brings people together. And when you can bring people together across racial divisions or ethnic divisions or religious divisions, whatever the divisions may be, everybody wants to be treated with respect. Everybody wants to be paid fairly so they can take care of their family. Everybody wants to go to the doctor, take care of their health, retire with dignity. Right. And we can find those issues to start building common ground. And, and hopefully those relationships translate into being able to tackle broader issues of injustice and open people's eyes. You maybe aren't seeing it right now, but through that relationship building and through that solidarity building can can start to see what folks of color are experiencing that they may not see right now. Yeah, no, I thank you for I there was there's so, so many thoughts that I'm having right now with what you just said. Uh first of all, where racism has been able to persist, it it um it doesn't protect like white workers uh living standards, right? In the in the south, the south is the poorest region in the country. Um and right, if racism, racism was working so great, well, you yeah. know, white workers would be experiencing very different conditions than they do. So, absolutely. I mean, there's something there that, you know, working people have to remember who is this really benefiting? Yep. And so I, I try to frame um, frame the conversation around like this. This hurts us all. It's not just, um, you know, uh, people of color who um, this uh, disadvantages. It's it's hurting us all. Um, I also want to point out as well that, like, I think if unions um also need to make this intervention and this is what i try to do with this workshop is is kind of make this intervention of um the way that we talk about um anti-racism um in this country there's there's two approaches i think that um that we have right there's the um dei uh approach um that's uh the, the neoliberal approach that emphasizes the individual it emphasizes you know thoughts and feelings um and um 
is within the the constraints of capitalism and focuses on like representation as like the remedy to uh, to racism, right? So you know, having more black and brown uh, people uh, in a boardroom or as a manager um, or in um, political positions. Um, I feel like that's the dominant prevailing way that we've talked about uh, anti-racism in this country. And it does nothing for the working conditions of regular rank and file members of unions and workers who aren't represented by a union. And so the second approach is recognizing that racism and racial justice and economic justice are intertwined. Um, and that capitalism needs, you know, ideologies in order to, you know, coerce um, individuals to, to shut up and go to work and for them to make profit. Um, and so racism is one of those ideologies that it, that is used. Um, so um, this approach focuses on um, collective action and it focuses on the, um, raising the floor for the material conditions of um, minority workers and workers all across the board um, in order to address racial justice issues, which is how we used to think about racial justice um, during the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, uh, the March on Washington was called Jobs for uh, Freedom, or Justice, sorry, what is it? Jobs and Justice? Right, right. Some Jobs and freedom, jobs and freedom. I jobs believe. and freedom. Yeah, yeah. They knew, uh, you know, one of their uh, planks was uh, full employment because they knew that would um, eliminate the need for competition and uh, raise the standards, the uh, working, uh, living standards of of everybody, but particularly for folks of color. So, um, yeah, I think you know this intervention for me was important to make uh, because. Um, especially as uh, being biracial, I was able to kind of see um, how, you know, my my white mother who was, we grew up poor um, and on government assistance with her and um, my black father who had a, a felon um, growing up and couldn't get a job and had to rely on the street economy in order to survive. So um, I wanted to make sure that I um, had an approach to this that actually dealt with both sides of that issue and not just, um, uh, you know, uh, painting, you know, um, painting this narrative that it's uh, white people versus black people, right? Um, I wanted to make sure that we actually named the enemy and we, we uh, have concrete tools that we can use to address it. Yeah, I think that is so important, and I appreciate the distinction you made in terms of different ways of thinking about this because, you know, spoiler alert, if it's approved by your company's HR department, it's probably yep. not very um, liberatory, <laughs> would just Absolutely, be yes. to think of it. Um, you know, if, if HR is in there talking about it, you know, there are going to be real limits to the vision and to the principles behind it. Uh, and so I appreciate you you having that distinction there because, yeah, a, a lot of times we hear about, you know, diversity in high places, but where does that leave everybody else? You know, the, the mass of folks who are working. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, boss is a boss. And, and even if your boss looks like you, there's still a power dynamic 
uh, and and yep. you're not winning in that power dynamic. So uh, I think that's really important uh, to pull out, and I, I appreciate your emphasis on that. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about race and labor before I uh, give you a chance to kind of talk about anything else Labor Notes is up to? Um, honest, I wanted to give some numbers for yeah. how unions are the most diverse institutions in America. So um, Black workers make up 15% of union members, um, despite only being 11% of the workforce. Uh, then Latinos make up another 9% of union members, um, but they are the fastest growing uh, minority group within unions. Um, and AAPI, which is a Asian Pacific Islanders, are 3.6% of the workforce, and they make up 3.3% of union members. Um, so if we exclude all of these people of color in organized labor, then uh, we would lose a quarter of our membership. So this conversation is extremely important to have um, in our unions just because of that alone, right? Um, yeah, really this is the place to you, do it. I'm so glad you brought that up because like there's this misconception I think out there or like an image in people's heads when they hear union, they think of like a big burly white guy in a hard hat yep. when they should probably think of a black woman, you know, yep. uh, that's... And that's I mean, I know that's a simplistic way of thinking about it, but there is that that image out there and, and you I deal with it all the time. I know when I bring up unions, that's where folks heads go a lot of times uh, and they're not thinking about the diversity inside our unions and the diversity of working people more broadly. Um, and so, I, yeah, that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up. So, yeah, I think. Yeah, oh, ahead. I'm so sorry. No well, I just it, it makes me excited thinking that's this is why I love labor, because I get I didn't realize like how important it was to the livelihood of or the um, just the plight of the uh, black struggle and um, yeah, struggle for everybody. Right. Um, so I wanted to share some other numbers that I had found that I thought was really interesting. Um, so in 1979 in the U.S. as a whole, uh, Blacks performing the same work as whites earned 10.9 percent less on average. And in the South, that gap was 14 percent. However, in the Midwest, uh, which was highly unionized at the time, that racial wealth, wealth, racial wage gap, sorry, not wealth gap, wage gap, uh, was less than 1%. Um, wow. That to me says so much. Uh, I think difference unions, right there. absolutely. Yeah. Unions are, um, I mean, it's, they're advantages for everybody, but disproportionately advantageous for workers of color. Um, and having a militant fighting union, um, you, being in a union itself is anti-racist work. Um, I think it's, but it it does um, it does have structures in place that help us break down those racial barriers, um, and is a powerful place um, to really uh, do this work, right? And and um, raise the standards of living for everyone. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to share those those numbers with you because I I it's what makes this work so like meaningful for me and um, why I enjoy doing it so much. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you did share that. And I think that's really, like I said, the union difference, being able to address a racial wage gap in the workplace 
uh, and and it show up in such a major statistical way. And I know on the Valley Labor Report, we've had uh, a researcher on who talked about the ways in which union membership actually decreased racial resentment among the membership, mm-hmm. um, which I found just so powerful. I mean, it makes intuitive sense, but the fact that really smart folks put a research study together and were able to put some numbers to that just really affirmed it, uh, you know, like you said, kind of affirmed why this work is important. Uh, so last thing I'll ask is, uh, was there anything else uh, that Labor Notes has going on that you wanted to make folks aware of? Yeah, so we um, we have a troublemaker school that's coming up in Seattle, um, September 30th. Uh, that's um, our most recent event that's coming up. Uh, we'll be doing an all-day secrets training in Detroit uh, here soon, I think, hopefully by October. And um, uh, our biannual conference that we do every two years in Chicago, um, that will come up quick. That's going to be April 2024. Um, so uh, I think we have the early bird registration uh, that will be up soon for people to be able to register uh, but yeah, we're doing a lot of exciting stuff. We have events all the time online. Um, so if you want to check that out, you can go to labornotes.org slash events and see what we have um, offered this month. Yep, that's it. Awesome, awesome. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the Labor Notes conference. I will definitely be there. I need to be making my plans because you're right. It'll be here really soon. Um, it'll be April before we know it. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thank you. All right, y'all. Courtney Smith with Labor Notes. Check it out, labornotes.org slash events. Um, I'll mention real quick, there are some online trainings Uh, In addition to the in-person workshops and conferences that she mentioned, uh, one that I wanted to for sure mention would be the uh, Investigating Grievances, and that's on August 23rd. So that's your stewards workshop. It's really designed for officers and stewards or people who are, you know, interested in serving that capacity. Uh, Again, that's the stewards workshop, Investigating Grievances. It will be August 23rd. Uh, It's online through Zoom that evening. Uh, Definitely check that out if you'd like to learn more about, you know, how to handle a grievance. Uh, It's a very essential skill, and they always do great workshops with the Stewards Workshop. Uh, And last thing I'll say uh, before I wrap up here is that I was on America's Workforce Radio last week. Thank you to Flash and the uh, AWF team for having me on. Got a chance to talk about the Valley Labor Report as well as Medicaid expansion in Alabama and a couple other Alabama news stories. And this Saturday, we've got a great show planned. We're going to be talking about some threats to Social Security. We're going to be talking about student organizing. Uh, We've got some great guests planned, so definitely tune in Saturday at 930. And that's it for today's Shop Talk. I hope it was worth your time. Really appreciate everyone who is listening today. And if you enjoyed it, please share with your network. Make sure you're signed up for our email list so you're plugged into the work we're doing. We are a working class media collective here at the Valley Labor Report. We're dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. 
We do bring you Alabama's only Union Talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. And, of course, the entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast. We encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, as well as our store, tvlr.fm store. We've got some really cool merch out there, including pre-orders for our uh, Join a Union or the Boss will get you a t-shirt. Definitely want to jump on that. And finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. We'll, we really appreciate the, the unions and other organizations that sponsor the show. Uh, our single biggest source of contributions, however, comes from listener donations. And we truly, truly appreciate you all who donate. You can do that at tvlr.fm slash donate. So if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity in collective organization, if you want media that is for working people and by working people, please consider becoming a recurring donor at tvlr.fm slash donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.